Praise God. The spirit of the Lord has invaded the Duke University football team. Uh, who would have thunk it? <laughs> um, it? There was 182 people that responded to the invitation last week to be baptized, uh, which is something to rejoice in. Amen. Amen. In fact, let me go out on a limb here and ask you to do something. If you were one of the ones that responded to um, that invitation to be baptized, you were baptized last week, regardless of what campus that you are at, uh, right now, in just a minute, I'm going to get you to stand up. Even if nobody stands up at your campus, you should clap anyway, because there's 182 people standing somewhere, uh, so we'll rejoice in that. But if you were baptized last week, if you would stand to your feet so that we can rejoice with you. Amen. You may, you may be seated, hold on, I don't know who, which of my friends does not know that this is not a good time for me to answer the phone, but sorry about that. It's a good reminder for you to turn off your phone right now. Um, let me say a special welcome to um, all of you at the Summit Church, especially those of you in the Briar Creek South Campus, and a special welcome to our many parents that um, have joined their students for, I know it's Parents Weekend at a couple of our universities. Um, uh, locally here, so I want to say a special welcome uh, to you. If you'll give me just a couple minutes, I want to let you know a few things that are going on um, in the church to make sure that you um, are up to speed on them. Um, basically, let me just kind of lay out something that we need. Um, we need about 500 people from Sunday morning um, at our various campuses to make a shift to Saturday night to be a part of either our 4 o'clock or 6 o'clock service there. Um, there are multiple reasons why you can and should do this. Let me give you a few of my favorite ones. Um, the first one, it is by far, 4 o'clock and 6 o'clock uh, on Saturday are by far the shortest sermons that are given at the Summit Church. Uh, my sermons are like Chia Pets and that the longer they soak, the, the larger they grow. Uh, so by the time you get here on Sunday morning, I've thought of all kinds of new stuff to say. Uh, so that's one reason. The second reason, uh, many of our families with young kids, including my family, have found that, that Saturday night is actually preferable because being able to get up on Sunday morning, there are some things, um, I, I, this never applies to me, but um, there are some things that families are able to do together on Sunday morning that um, after having you know, rejoiced in God on Saturday night and be able to spend um, Sunday doing some things, if you are a, a family, I would encourage you just to try it. Um, because you may find that it really works um, for you. Um, a third reason, uh, and probably one of the, the main reasons, is that um, many of our guests that come here, um, many of them who are not you know, really sure uh, about Jesus yet, this service and our 11 o'clock service are where they, they, they come. Um, and so by, by going on Saturday night, you actually free up a place for somebody um, to be able to, to hear the gospel maybe for the first time. Um, so I would encourage you to think even about doing that for the next two or three months just to try it out. Um, if you could give us two or three months doing that, it would help us get through the fall um, and uh, the, the new attendance God is bringing us, and you might find that it actually works better and you, uh, you like it better. Um, as a shameless attempt to lure you there, we are doing another famous uh, redneck food truck radio rodeo um, in between the two services uh, next week. It's pretty awesome. You'll see the whole fleet of um, food trucks that are there in between the four o'clock and six o'clock services. It's a great time for families just to hang out and have a good time. Uh, we did one a few weeks ago and it was awesome, so we're doing that again. Um, give you a quick reminder, um, today at one o'clock at the West Club campus, uh, we are having an interest meeting for those of you that are curious about or perhaps interested in our next church plant, which is going to be in Baltimore. When I say interested in, I mean that either A, you might think about being a part of that church plant, leaving the Summit Church and moving 
um, up there to be a part of that team. Uh, you might know some people in Baltimore and you'd like to find out more so you can help get them connected. Or maybe you're, you know that you're supposed to be in Raleigh-Durham, but you would just love to be able to support them and to pray for them and, and to just be actively a part. Sending always involves those who go and it involves faithful ones who stay and are a part of sending. Um, as a church, we are committed to reaching Raleigh-Durham. Um, we think this is a very strategic place to be. We love this city, but we know God has also called us to be a sending church. And so our goal is to send out 1,000 churches over the next 40 years or by 2050. Um, and so this is uh, the next one of those that is going to be, uh, um, it's just God is doing some incredible things here um, in our midst, and we're, we're very grateful for that. Um, if you've been here for a while, you know that we are in week number six of our Can't Believe series. Um, in which we've been taking a look at the Gospel of John at the stories of um, people in the Gospel of John who, for whatever reason, could not believe. Um, there was some obstacle that kept them from faith in Christ. Um, and so we've looked at, at, at five different stories um, thus far. Um, in my hands here, I'm holding um, something that I, was, uh, that I came across about a year ago, um, which is the story of... Uh, perhaps what I think may be one of the most, if not the most compelling story um, in our generation of someone who could not believe and how Jesus Christ, who is as real today as he was 2,000 years ago, intervened in this um, young man's life and how absolutely revolutionized who he was. Um, as I became familiar with this guy, I've had a chance to become friends with him over the, uh, over the last year. Um, we became fast friends. Uh, he's become a, a very good friend um, here in the last, um, the last several months here. And it was after I started this series, uh, I, I'm not the kind of guy that feels like God speaks to him every morning in his Cheerios. I mean, you know that's not me. But I just felt like, I was like, this guy um, needs to be a part of this series to be able to share um, how Jesus intercepted his life. Um, Jesus is as real today he walks the earth today just as he did 2,000 years ago. And um, his intervention in people's lives is just as real. And so I wanted you to have a chance to, to hear him. Um, and so I am going to ask uh, to come to the stage here, um, my friend David Nasser, if you would welcome him at all of our campuses. David, you come. Thanks, J.D. How are you? Everybody good? If you have your Bibles, if you would, get them out, and uh, let's go to Isaiah 41, 9, and 10. And as we go there, let me just uh, quickly uh, just glorify God and honor uh, just uh, the, your pastor and his sweet wife, uh, Veronica, and tell you that in the last year that we've gotten to know each other, um, it has been such a needed thing in my life to have uh, great pastors that can kind of pour into me and mentor me uh, as a brand new baby church planting pastor. Uh, through the process. And so uh, the first time I ever called JD was through our common friend, Matt Papa. And I was like, man, I'm in Raleigh uh, in town for a few days. Would love to get around. JD have been listening to some of his podcasts, have been watching how uh, your church is all about missions. And as a former Muslim, I loved his book, you know. And so uh, JD just went from a, like, hey, can we just kind of get together? It's, what I was shooting for was 10 minutes at a Starbucks. And I got an invitation to his home. And we just sat there and got to know each other, and I got to know his wife. And uh, I think I sat in, uh, in the hotel driveway after our meeting, J.D., and I think we, I spent about 45 minutes while it was still fresh on my mind just writing down J.D.-isms, you know, just one-liners that I thought, this will preach at my church, and I can't. First time, I'll give him credit. Second time, it'll be mine, you know. And so <laughs> it's just been awesome to have 
a year's supply of quotes, you know, and, and stuff like that. And then um, past that, it's just been so awesome to watch you as a church, as a model for us as a young church on how to be like fertile little rabbits that replicate every time you turn around. And uh, I just love that about the spirit of this church. And we want to be that kind of church at Christ City Church. And then I will throw one more thing in, uh, just being here this weekend, meeting the people, meeting the staff, meeting the leadership, being around Heather, who is the backbone of this church, by the way, JD's assistant, and just the graciousness and the hospitality of your people. Again, it's just worthy of mimicking because it's got just Jesus all over it. All right. And so let me just, I took 120 seconds there just to say, let me honor you and thank you for being a real example uh, for a pastor. All right. All that said, let's get to the word of God together. Uh, this is a promise from God in Isaiah 41, 9 and 10. And I think this promise is really good for us in the series because uh, it's true on either side of the I can't believeisms of our lives. You know, what's interesting about the series that JD has been preaching uh, is that some of these folks we know can't get over the hurdle of the I can't believeism. I mean, you look at Pilate, and for all we know, uh, you know, Pilate probably doesn't come to the great knowledge of the gospel. I don't know about you, but when I get to heaven, if Pilate's there, that'll be a big surprise to me. I mean, you look at some of these other folks, though, like a Nicodemus, and he actually shows up later on in the Bible. He's the one who actually puts, you know, the, the, the perfume on Jesus and begins to wrap him and prepare him for the gospel. And so you see evidence there that he got over the you know, immunized with the uh, gospelisms of his life. And you look at the woman at the well, and sure enough, she had, you know, a, a sexual past that was definitely an obstacle. But by the end of the story, you see that she's, she's embraced by the gospel and gives his last words to her, go and sin no more. And she's like sent out as a missionary. And the beautiful thing about this passage here for us is that whether you're on this side of the I can't believe it, or, uh, you know, the gospel, or on the other side, uh, God is not exempt. This truth right here is not exempt. This is true even before you recognize this. This is true about the woman at the well before that moment of conversion for her. This is true for anybody in this room who's ever found themselves, by the time their time, their little vapor time here on earth, comes to the end. It's a true statement about the elect, the people of God. And God makes this promise in Isaiah 41.9. But y'all, listen, uh, this is just more than a statement about the people of Israel. I know this is true about me because I've seen this come into fruition in my life. I just want to read you this promise uh, from God. Isaiah 41.9 says this. He says, I, the I in the promise is God. That's important to know because it's a God-sized promise. Everybody here has been made promises that have not come through. It's good to know God's the one, the one who bats a thousand, who's making the promise. God says, I took you. You is you. If you're cool with writing in your Bible, circle the I, put God on top of it. Circle the you, put your name on top of it. You look like a bunch of preppy people named Brody and Brittany to me, but whatever your name is, all right, insert your name per Kashaniqua, Ray Ray, Abdul, whoever you are, insert your name right there on top of it, all right? So I took you, that's you. I took you from the ends of of the earth. The ends of the earth means Iran. That's where I'm from. You know the 7-Eleven people? You have to pay for this slurpee. That's my dad, all right? So those are actually, those are actually Pakistanians, but don't let that stop you from laughing, all right? But you know, uh, you know, ends of the earth might not just be Pakistan or Iran or Nagano or Saudi Arabia or Jordan. End of the earth, I met somebody the other day. No kidding. The other day I met somebody who said, I drive 
41 to 43 minutes to get to the nearest Walmart. And I thought, dude, if there's not a Walmart within five minutes of you, you are at the ends of the earth. If Sam Walton hadn't got to, you are in some redneck third world in Arkansas. All right? So, you know, so whoever you are, God is not exempt in this. He says, I took you from the ends of the earth, and from his farthest corner, from his farthest corner, I called you, I called you. So he can get, his, his frequency can get through any obstacle, any barrier. I called you and I said, you're my servant. And I, haven't cho- I have chosen you and I've not rejected you. And so he says, do not fear. Do not fear. Why? For I am with you and do not be dismayed. Why? Because I am your God and I will help you. Anybody here this morning need help? Come on. Really? Three people in the front? Thank you for lifting your hand. The rest of these people don't need help. This is just for the four of us. All right, right here. Anybody else need some help? I don't know about y'all. I need help in every facet of my life. I don't just not need help in, uh, you know, like my thought life or need help. I need help. I need help in my marriage. Anybody here need help? Are y'all married? Are y'all married right here? Y'all married? Cool. You're holding hands. You should be married. All right, cool. I'm glad you're married. All right. yeah, any, what's your name? What's your name, sir? Mark? Mike, you need help in your marriage, right? You need help. Yes, you need help. She needs help. That's a, that'd be a no, right? right that'd be a, I go, she needs help. Like, everybody here needs help. I don't know about you. I need help in my marriage. I need help as a pastor. I need help as a father. I need help just to get out of bed. Anybody with me on that? And so God says, God says, I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And I got to tell you, long before I saw this, this truth for the people of God, God saw it in me. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty much a deadly cocktail of all the camp believisms that you guys have been studying. I've got Pilate all up in my life, you know, passivity and the idea of just not really caring, the idea of fear of other people's opinions. I've got the woman of well with all my, all my insecurities and all my, you know, background of the mistakes that I've made in my life. I definitely have the Mary and Martha disappointed because things aren't going my way. I definitely have the short-sightedness of the feeding of the 5,000 folks who just couldn't see beyond the moment of need. I'm telling you, I'm a cocked, a hybrid model of every one of those things. But yet, even despite that barricade that just kept piling up, this truth God was bringing into my life before I even acknowledged it, before I even noticed it. My earliest memories weren't memories of, of, uh, of the goodness of God that we just read. My earliest memories were a whole lot of I can't believes. I mean, most nine-year-olds don't probably have the thought, I'm never going to believe in God. I'm never going to become a person of God. Most nine-year-olds don't have those kind of thoughts, but I did when I was nine. I know most nine-year-olds think stuff like, I don't know, um, should I eat this crayon? All right, but I'm just telling you, I was nine when I thought, uh, I don't want to believe in God ever. I want to have nothing to do with God ever because I was nine years old when I saw one thirty-sixth of my nation massacred and killed in a revolution in Iran. I saw religion gone wrong. I saw people taking over my country. Ayatollah Khomeini and his zealots taking over my country. And and when that happened, I remember as a nine-year-old little kid seeing friends of ours literally just massacred and killed in this revolution. I remember soldiers coming to my school and a gun being put at my head at a school assembly in our little army base that I went to and a guy quoting from the Quran and telling me because of Allah, he was going to end my life. And the school principal got between me and the gun and said, please don't do this. Come back another day. 
I remember a couple weeks later, soldiers coming to our home, and because of who my father was in the military, dragging my father out of our house, and as they were dragging him out, I'll never forget my mom hanging on to the leg of one of the soldiers and just begging him, please don't do this. Come, just kill him all the, just kill him quickly. Just, if you're going to kill him, just quickly, just kill him. Don't torture him. And because we knew they were taking my dad to the same park that the day before they'd taken some of his friends. His friends were tied up to trees and with pairs of pliers. They were picked apart piece by piece in slow torture. And so my first memory ever of prayer was my mom holding our hands and just begging God up there that my dad would die quickly and not be slowly bled to death with a pair of pliers. And so I'm telling you that to say I was nine years old when I thought, I don't know what we've done to hack God off. I don't know what we've done to make God so angry at us, but I want to have nothing to do with him. And that afternoon, my dad came home and said, they're not going to kill me, not today. They're going to come back for me in a few weeks, and we're running away. They're not going to get us as a family. And I remember as a nine-year-old thinking, we're getting as far away from God as we possibly can. We planned our escape as a family. It was pretty dramatic, you know, and how we, we escaped. We used my mom and her heart conditions as an excuse to get out. And I'll never forget going to the airport and holding my dad's hand in the airport in Iran. And as his hand was shaking, he kept saying to my mom, they're going to find this jewelry that we stuffed in my baby brother's baby carriage, and they're going to kill us right here on the spot. But I didn't know even back then because I couldn't see with all the barricades of, of just I can't believe and I don't want to believe and I want to get away from him how even then God's righteous right hand was carrying us out of Iran. Nobody found the jewelry. We got in the plane. We landed in Switzerland. And we, instead of obviously uh, saying that we, we said that we needed surgery that my mom didn't really need, we went to the American consulate and we applied to become refugees. Fancy word for it was political asylum. And we told these folks, we said, look, uh, because of who my dad is, we need to get out of Iran. Can you help us out? And nobody at that time was allowing Iranians into America because we were from the wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, Iranians were burning the American flag, and they were calling America the great Satan, and they'd held 54 Americans hostage in the American embassy. And so every day, the local news and the national news would start with, hey, look at these terrorists that are beating up our Americans. And, and that was the thing on the forefront of everybody's thought. And we moved right into America. And I'm telling you, as we move into America, after nine months of trying all these different things, we walk into a culture where the worst thing you could possibly be was Iranian. Not only did we move to America, we moved to Texas, y'all. Texas. <laughs> you ever hang out with Texans? They're so proud of their state, you know? the United States of Texas. They like to tell you it's the biggest state. They like t-shirts that say, don't mess with Texas. And their toast is twice as thick as everybody else's toast. And they're te they forget to tell you that like 80% of their state are Mexicans that aren't even there legally. But that's beside the point, right? And so Texas. And so we moved right in. And not only did we move to Texas, we moved to a military town, the largest military base in the world, Fort Hood in Texas, in Colleen. And I'm telling you, as an Iranian family, we moved right in, and I was a wedgie waiting to happen. <laughs> and as a nine-year-old kid, I just blamed God. I thought, wow, God's the reason we've left our home. God's the reason we've left our family, the reason we've lost everything. And now I'm here in America completely from a different culture, and I'm completely the outcast because of him. All the way through elementary school, that was me. I was the kid that was always the loner, the kid that sat by himself and ate his lunch alone, the kid that heard every nickname, every 7-Eleven joke, every turban joke. I got called bean dip every day, and I'm not even Mexican. I'd be like, you don't even know how to hate right, you know? And so we'd escaped halfway. 
across the world to unplug from one kind of terrorism and plug into a whole other kind. And I'm just telling you that to say, on paper, J.D. is so right. There is no reason I should have ever given God a chance. But even before I knew him, I can look back then and see how God was beginning his good work in us. Well, for years and years, I was the outcasted kid until the day my freshman year in high school was about to start. I'll never forget that day. I was sitting in my room. I was crying. My dad hears me. He comes in. We start talking. And I told him, I said, Dad, nobody likes me. I don't like them. I don't blend in here in America. I said, what are we going to do? And my dad felt sorry for me. So he goes, come with me. And he puts me in the car and he drives me out to the mall. And that afternoon, my dad gives me this extreme makeover. I mean, new haircut, new shoes, new clothes, new everything. Same insecure kid on the inside, completely made over on the outside. And I went to school the next day. And overnight, overnight, I went from like Abdul to Julio, baby, overnight. I mean, I went to school. And I went from geek to chic. I mean, I found instant friends. And I found out what you already know, right? I found out that you don't have to be from Iran to figure this out. I found out that all you have to do is conform to the patterns of this world. And just, it's so silly, isn't it? Just having the right kind of genes can put you into a crowd. And as silly, as trivial as that sounds, I found out you just play the game and the game will let you play it. And I just played that game all through high school. I mean, for the first time in my life, I was finding friends. I mean, they were fabricated relationships because of the fact that I drove the right car or because I'd learned how to end up at the right lunchroom table or because I learned how to dump the right girl before she could dump me or how to be cold to be perceived as cool. But I learned really well how to play that game, that cultural game, and I graduated voted most popular in my high school. And I know that, that sounds really glossy, but I'm telling you, I was suicidal. It's so true where it says in Scripture, what good is it for man to gain the whole world but just to forfeit his soul? And I just completely sold out. I graduate with a 1.9 GPA. 1.9. And let me just go ahead and even gear that down one more and tell you, we'd move from Texas to Alabama. So 1.9 GPA in Alabama, y'all. That's about as bad as it gets, right? And so I graduate with a 1.9 GPA because all my energy had gone into just trying to find security in the crowd. And so as soon as I got my cap and gown, barely, I lost my God. You know what I mean when I say that? Your God is who you worship. Your God is who you think your greatest thoughts around. Your God is who you filter all your decision-making through. Your God is who you bow your life down before. Your God is where you shed your greatest tears. Your God is who you live for. And my God was the crowd. That's where I drew all my energy. That's where the idea of just being around a huddle of people and being validated by them. Really, the I can't believeisms of, of Pilate, just needing to go with the popular flow. And so I hit this, this wall of depression because I graduated from high school. They all go to this school and this school and this school, and I can't really get accepted anywhere. And so depression just starts taking over my life. A couple months later, after high school, one night I'm in the in the front of my house uh, with this buddy of mine. We're the only two kind of left from high school that are still around. And, and to be really frank, we're just kind of passing this joint back and forth. We're finishing it up right before midnight before I'm about to go in the house. So while we're finishing this joint and we're just kind of smoking, you know, this one last couple of puffs or whatever, I look over at him and I tell my friend, I go, I can't believe we've got nowhere to be popular anymore. We've got nowhere to be accepted anymore. And, and my buddy has this epiphany and he looks over at me and he says this. He goes, well, man, you know, in America... 
Church is like the next big social ground outside of school. He goes, you ought to come to church with me tomorrow. And I'm really surprised because he's literally handing me Mexican Red Bud while he's (laughs) inviting me to church. And so I'm like, you go to church? (laughs) And he's like, I love church. (laughs) And I know... I know the Bible in Genesis says that God made the grass and it was good, but that's not what it means, right? So I'm like, really? And so we're having this conversation over uh, over a joint about church. Isn't that American churchianity? And I told him, I said, man, I'm not going to church. He said, why not? I mean, talk about giving up my list of like can't believes, can't, won't come to church, won't believes. I was like, man, I hate church. He goes, what do you mean? I said, I hate religion. He goes, what do you mean? I said, I hate any kind of religion. He goes, what? I said, dude, I'm telling you, I saw religion destroy my country when I was a kid. We haven't seen my, my grandmother just passed away two years ago, didn't get to go to her funeral, didn't see her for 11 years before that because of religion. I said, I hate religion. He was like, oh man, not Islam, Christianity. And I'd seen that stuff on TV. People with big hair sitting around some golden chair and a cherub dipped in some fake gold going, Jesus loves you, you know, show me the money. And so I had all these excuses of why I didn't want to believe. And I told him all the reasons I didn't want to go, but he tried one last thing. He named the five hottest girls from our high school. And he got to the, 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 the last three and he said, all three of these girls go to my church. And I was like, here I am to worship. Let's go. I was motivated. And I'll be honest, like the first time I ever wanted to go to church, I didn't want to go so that I could meet God. I wanted to go to be social. And I just went. I'll tell you though how I got to go. There were these people from this church, Shades Mountain Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, who about a week and a half before I got invited to church by a lost guy who were coming to my father's restaurant. We're talking about the pastor and the worship pastor and different people from the church who were coming to my dad's restaurant and, and they had seen how he was shorthanded on waitstaff and they had rolled up their sleeves and waited on tables at his restaurant and continued to go back to his restaurant for about a week and a half and serve my dad. They called it missions. My dad called it free labor, uh, you know, slavery. And so my dad had been letting him do that. And so on a Saturday night when my friend invited me and I knew my dad would never let me go, instead he let me go because this church had been used by God to get rid of some of the won't goes, can't believe, not my son-isms in my own father's life. So on a Sunday morning, I go to this church, you know, and I walk in this church. I've never really been a, to church on my own, you know, not really. And, and I just kind of walk into this gym, 400 teenagers packed in the gym. I walk right in, and as soon as I walk in, I see a bunch of people I used to party with. So I walk up to them, and they're acting really different. They're all walking around saying, bless you, bless you. Nobody's sneezing, you know, and so I'm like, what's wrong with you? And they're all uber Christian in the church building. And so within five minutes, they're all as far away from me in the room as can be because I'm just cussing like how we did on Saturday night. To me, Sunday morning was no different. And I'm just kind of, you know, being me. And, and they just far away are kind of standing there. And the youth pastor gets up and he says, uh, all right, everybody, we're running late. Have a seat. So I go all by myself and I sit in the front row. As soon as I sat in the front row, though, I looked up and I saw Larry No. Let me tell you about Larry No. Everybody in our town knew Larry No. Larry No was half Korean, half English, and he was a football star in our town, a high school football star that everybody knew who showed up 
uh, you know, uh, everybody knew, kind of showed up on all the local papers as a kid who was offered scholarships to all these SEC teams and Notre Dame and all these different places, but he didn't want to go to any of them because he said, God has called me to a greater calling in my life. And he and I had met about a year before that Sunday morning when I was sitting at his church and he was beelining towards me when he had walked up to me at a party. And at this party, he told me, he, he walked up to me and some of my friends and he told me, he said, hey guys, God told me to stop here. God told me to just come up to you guys. And he just began to tell us. He said, guys, all the stuff you're trying to fill your life up with is going to leave you empty. He said, Jesus Christ is the living you know, water. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. Only he can satisfy all the hunger in your soul. And he began to share the gospel. He was like, hey, David. I mean, somehow he knew my name. I'll never forget standing there at the party outside. He was like, David, you're a sinner. And as a sinner, he didn't have to tell me that. You know, I just knew that. He was like, hey, man, and as a sinner, God is a holy and a perfect and a righteous God, and your sin separates you from God. And here's the problem. You can't be good enough. You can't be moral enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't, you know, write a tithe check big enough to remove that sin. And so you need a Savior. And God is a wrathful God, an appropriately wrathful God, who is going to act justly upon your sin. And that's why he sent his son Jesus to become the way, the truth, and the life, the only hope you have. And he starts explaining how Jesus came down to earth as the son of God, lived this perfect life, and then died a sinner's death to be the substitute for my sin. And in the courtroom of life, I'm guilty, but Jesus says, I'm going to plead you know, guilty for you, and all of that. He just starts explaining that, and he tells me, he said, he looks at me at the party, and he goes, David, you need Christ, and he starts talking to all these people in the circle, and honestly, um, I was kind of half drunk, so I was kind of listening and not listening, but what I noticed was my girlfriend was beginning to nod her head, and I didn't like that. I didn't like the fact that she was listening to him because, honestly, I had plans for her. And the last thing I wanted for her was to get fired up about God. You know, that, that would have really intercepted plans that I have. Look at me. It, it's for some of you, it, it's not that you won't believe. You can't believe. Some of you, people around you don't want you to believe. Some of you are married to a person who the last thing they want on their agenda is for you to get fired up about God. I mean, what if one of you goes, we ought to think about Baltimore. Are you kidding me? You mean move our family to go be a part of a church plant? What if God says, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to start being faithful in giving our time, treasure, and talent to the body of Christ. Are you kidding me? I like just kind of showing up to church. I like kind of living my own life. I like being the God of my life. I want just enough religion to just kind of sprinkle it. I like being Nicodemus. I don't really give a rip. Some of you are right now around people who have plans for you. And I know what that's like because I had plans for this girl. The last thing I wanted was this girl getting fired up about God. So I just start making fun of him. I start laughing. I start cracking Korean jokes, you know, and, and everything he's saying, you know. I'm kind of doing Korean impersonations and stuff like that. And, and he's a big old dude. I mean, dude could have just killed me right there. Big old linebacker. But he shakes his head. He walks away. He gets in his car, and he drives off, y'all. And a year later, I'm sitting at his church, and he's beelining right towards me. And I thought, now it's his turn. You know, now he's going to get me back. Now it's like 400 of them against me. And so he walks over and he goes, I remember you. That's exactly what I was afraid of. He goes, you're David Nasser. I'm like, you're Larry No. He goes, man, I'm not going to hit you. He goes, I'm glad you're here. He goes, David, this is an answer to prayer. He goes, can I sit beside you? And he sits down beside me. And I didn't have a Bible when the youth pastor said, get out your Bible. And he quietly opened up his Bible and placed it on the right page and put it on my lap. And the whole time the Sunday school lesson was going on, I was thinking, man, I was such a jerk to this guy. Why is he nice to me? And I didn't understand that that's grace, right? Undeserving love. 
unmerited favor, that, that people could love you despite you because they love Jesus Christ. And when the Sunday school lesson was over, Larry stood up, looked at me, and he said, David, you've got to come back tonight. I'm so glad you're here because you've got to come back tonight. And I had nothing to do, but I was just filled with pride. And I said, man, i got stuff to do tonight. You know what he said? He said, all right. He goes, if you don't want to come back tonight to our church, he goes, uh, we'll come see you. And they had this thing called visitation. <laughs> Lost people call it harassment. <laughs> it's more annoying than having Amway friends. You know what I'm saying? You know, so like 15 of them showed up at my house, and they were like, hey, can we come in for a few minutes? And they lied, because three hours later, they were still in my house. And they had Bible tracts that all opened up into a cross, you know, and they had the bracelets that all had the beads with all the different things that stood for, you know, different things that shared the gospel. I mean, they came in prepped, and they started to tell me about Jesus, how God so loved me that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, that if I believed in him, if I gave my life over to him and said, Jesus, you're the only hope I have, you're the only Savior that can save me, that I can not perish but find eternal life. And when they got done and they were like, David, do you want to give your life to Jesus? I was like, guys, I'm sure he loves you. I'm sure he doesn't want you to perish. You're awesome religious people. You don't know how bad I've been. And they were like, dude, it's not about how good you are or how bad you are. It's all about who Jesus is. And that sounded really good and catchy and tweetable, all right, before even Twitter was around. But I just laughed and I said, guys, that's not going to happen. You guys just can talk all day long. I'm never going to become religious. And they were like, dude, we don't want you to be religious. We're not interested in making you religious. I was like, guys, you know, it sounds like a religion to me. And they finally got up and walked away. And on their way out, they were honest. On their way out, one of them did say something like, we'll see you later. And they weren't kidding. Every Monday from then on, we're like, hide. The Southern Baptists are coming. The Southern Baptists. <laughs> we were the Iranians, but we were getting terrorized with the gospel. <laughs> and every Monday, Christians showed up at my house. And they brought Bibles, and they waged war. And can I tell you this? It wasn't about all the stuff I'd done wrong. It was all the stuff that Jesus was. They focused in on him. And it wasn't about cultural swapping religion. I'm telling you, I mean, there was plenty of Adamic nature, plenty of the truth of the gospel. But I'm telling you, they focused in on the good news of Jesus. And for two months, every time the church doors were open, I was at their church. You know why? Every Monday, they'd, they'd come to my house. And every Wednesday and every Sunday, they'd come to my house and they'd drag me to church. Now, I say they dragged me to church, but I wanted to go. Because I'd never seen anything like it. I'd never seen, like, that kind of a magnet. I knew boyfriend, girlfriend love, mom and dad love. But I didn't know that that, that kind of love could be on somebody. And one night, I was at their church about two months in, and, and the preacher was preaching. And we're talking about an old school preacher, all right? This, we're not talking about, like, cool and hip like J.D. You know how, like, J.D. and Veronica basically look like a, a little Abercrombie ad, you know, and stuff like that, just so perfect looking? Their kids run around. They're like just perfect little white kids, you know? This, this, this was not that pastor, all right? Like, you know, J.D.'s all hip, and, you know, uh, th this guy was, like, old, it was like, not, like Jesus was in his youth group old, all right? like old, all right? And he had the suit, and he, his suit always sweated, like he, he sweated through the suit, you know? And, and I was like, man, you should pick other colors that don't really accentuate the sweat, you know? And, and his, his fat rolls in the back would just start just glanding down. And I just remember, and he, his comb over would just start sliding about the second point. And, and I remember he was always like King James only. He was like, come on down. We're going to condemn you and the kids. You're going to fry hair like a piece of sausage. That guy, all right? So, you know, he was just that. And I remember he was not cool. He was not hip. He was kind of old school, Southern Baptist, deep fried, you know, chicken, that guy, you know. But I'll tell you this. 
he was honest. And one night about two months in, right after like an incredible organ cantata or whatever, you know, he was into his sermon and he said, he said this, I'll never forget what he said. I'll never forget it. He said, some of y'all tonight think you're too bad. You've done too many wrong things to ever come to Jesus. He goes, nope, you can't ever be far enough. And I thought, and then he starts in on like people and the stuff they've done to think that they're far enough, all the I can't believe-isms, all the woman of the well-isms, you know. And I thought, somebody has been passing this guy some notes about me. How does he know? And then I thought, man, he's talking to all the blatant lost people in the room. And then he turned on the people in the room. And he goes, some of you tonight, you don't think that you're far away and you can't come to him. You think you're with him, but you ain't with him. And then he started it on them. I was like, yeah, come on with it. And he starts in on the church people. He goes, some of y'all, you think you know him, but you don't know him. He goes, you think you've given him your heart, but he don't just want your heart. He goes, the heart is just the front door. He goes, that's all it is. It's just a place where you tell him to come on in. He goes, but listen, you don't get him to come on in and just hang out in the foyer. And he starts saying on how the heart is just this place where you can ask Jesus to come in, like symbolically, and come in. And he said, but some of y'all just want Jesus to be a guest who kind of hangs out in the front porch, hangs out in the front foyer. But he said, he ain't interested in being a guest in your front foyer. He wants in every room. He starts saying on, he wants in your kitchen. And he goes into about how fat people need to get skinny because Jesus needs to be the Lord of their kitchen. And then he goes, he wants in your bedroom. And he gets all up into like, you know, how he wants sexual purity. He goes, he wants in your bank closet. I'm like, people got bank closets? you know and he was like he wants in this and he goes some of y'all got dark closets he goes he wants to be the god of every room he wants to be the landlord of you as a piece of property he wants you to give the deed over to him he starts in on that and i'm, I'm just listening i'm going man that's who god is and he goes he goes and some of y'all you don't want to give him the deed because you think you're too good he goes you ain't nothing but a ghetto house and somehow King royalty wants to come and live in ghetto and turn you into a mansion, and you think way too highly of your ghetto house. And I was like, I like this redneck. <laughs> and then he says this. He says, I don't care who you are. This ain't about your heart. He's selfish for all of you. He wants your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, all of you. You ready to give all of you and say, all of me needs saving? And then he gives this invitation. He goes, if you want to do that, you just come right here to the front. And, man, people are just coming down the front. They're just coming down crying, I don't want to die. I've sinned against him. I'm dating my cousin. What, I don't know, whatever. You people are just going, right? In Alabama, that's, that's legal. All right, you know, it's a, encouraged. And so, man, people are coming. And I remember all of a sudden, all of a sudden, like, this, this conviction from the Holy Spirit was on me. Now, when you're lost, you don't think of it as conviction. You think of it as a guilt trip. And I remember thinking, man, all my life I've been terrorized by religion, and now some guy's trying to walk me down his aisle. I didn't realize that he was just honest enough to tell me the truth. And so during the invitation, while people are hitting the aisle and coming forward, I hit the aisle, but I went as fast as I could out of the room. And I remember I went out and got in my car, and I thought, I'm getting away from this stuff. I'm never going to be suckered into coming. This stuff is starting to get to me, coming back to one of these guilt trip meetings again. And I got in my car and I drove home. And as soon as I got home, I remember I walked into my house and uh, my parents were out of town that night. They were about two and a half hours away in Atlanta coming in later. And, and as soon as I walked in, I remember I thought, I'm getting away. And I walked into my bedroom and the presence of God was thicker in my room than it was in this church with a steeple. It's like the psalmist says in Psalm 139 where he says, where can I go from your presence? Oh, Lord. 
If I go to the mountains, you are there. And if I go to the valleys, you are there. I mean, I walked into my bedroom, and I'm telling you, that night, I, that night, I'll never forget that night, man, God, the God of this universe just in my own bedroom and in my backyard, because I took this Bible to my backyard, and I thought I'm going to burn it, and I couldn't find a match, and it was complicated and dramatic and very Iranian. All right, I'm just telling you that to say, I mean, I finally, after a few minutes of just coming to terms with the truth, realized just by reading this Bible that the, the God of this universe, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that I could become the righteousness of God, and that that was, that was basically the worst exchange rate ever. But yet somehow he was offering it to me. And that he was selfish for me. And he lived the perfect life and then died a sinner's death, and then they put him in a tomb because he paid the penalty for my sin, and then they came back to check on the tomb, and that the tomb was empty because he'd conquered the grave, and that, that resurrection power was available to me, and that I had the audacity to turn my face against it. And little by little, God had just dismantled all the bricks of camp believisms that are held together by the mortar of pride. Like the Apostle Paul says, that night I was crucified with Christ. I knew all the fancy words. You want to hear my sinner's prayer? Um, here's, here it was. I'm a sinner, so I prayed. Uh, and so you want to hear it? I said, Jesus, I'm all in. I am yours. That redneck pastor a few hours ago was saying, you know, he don't just want your heart. He wants all of you. I was like, I don't know why you'd want me. I don't know why you would want me, but I'll take it because I sure need you. I need you more than just as a savior. You know, I need you as the example of my life. I need you more than just to come in as a cop and clean up my act. I need you because every single ounce of me desperately needs a savior because I deserve the wrath of God, but yet somehow, even though I deserve his wrathful left, you're offering me your righteous right. My parents will tell you about that night. They'll tell you, I will never forget that night. That's what my dad will tell you. We were out of town in Atlanta. We came home few hours later and when we came home it was like almost two o'clock in the morning and we could hear him crying in his bedroom he's like my dad will tell you he was like his face when I walked in the bedroom was on the carpet his hands were spread out to the floor and David kept yelling out loud when I came in I love him I love him and I thought oh no that's what he says <laughs> and I told my dad I was like dad I love Jesus and my dad was like neither one is good for me and my parents were never devout as Muslims until the night I became a Christian. They instantly became very devout. They're like, you cannot be a Christian, we're Muslims. But my mom kind of tugged at my dad's jacket, and they went in the other room. And I know what they were saying. They thought, you know, it's just a stage. He's got a tennis racket because he wanted to be Andre Agassi and all the tennis camps and lessons never went anywhere. He's got a surfboard even though we live four hours away from any body of water. He's got a tent and he's got a guitar because, you know, that Van Halen stage kind of you know, flush this self out. Let him have a Bible, and he'll get over it quickly. But they didn't realize, when you really, when you authentically, when you biblically receive Christ as the Lord of your life, it's not like a little Christian cold that you catch, and then it just kind of goes away. It's a whole new you. And the night that everything really went down was about two weeks after I was a Christian, and uh, this, this night where I was going to go get baptized at the church where God had used these people to bring me to Christ. I'll never forget it. 
I'll never forget going to get baptized and telling my mom and dad, hey, they've asked me to invite you if you want to come to see what baptism is. And I explained to them the beauty of baptism, this act of expression, right? This act of thanksgiving, this kind of going public of I'm not ashamed. I want people to know I've been buried with Christ and raised to, to, to you know, walk in newness of life. And I explained that to my parents and, and my mom and dad were like, that's it. We've had enough. You have been embarrassing us for all these weeks, being a Christian. Now our friends are going to talk. If you get baptized, it will be even more embarrassment. And it was just pride. And it was just all these things that all the Iranians were saying, hey, did you hear David drank the Kool-Aid, you know, or whatever. And, and so, you know, my dad was like, you will stop being a Christian. Let me ask you a question. How do you stop being a Christian? Some of y'all have an answer to that. You walk into your sorority house and you stop. You come to Summit and you start. You can start and stop. You've never started. And that night, I went and got baptized. I was more about exercising my rights than anything else. I'll never forget, I went and got baptized, and I came home, and my dad said, did you get baptized? I said, yes, sir. And he said, you're dead to me. You're no longer my son. And he gave me one duffel bag, and he kicked me out of the house. He took my wallet, kept my driver's license, took my wallet, credit card, everything that I had, and he took the card keys, and he said, you're on your own. I went across the street. This was before cell phones, and I called the guy that led me to the Lord, and I was like, hey, dude. I just became homeless. It's kind of your fault. He's like, no, it's God's fault, but okay. And he came and got me, and I moved in with six guys that lived in a one-bedroom apartment, and we were about as broke as can be. I mean, when you can't afford ramen noodles, you're broke, all right? You know, and I'm just telling you, I'd never been more rich. And five months after I was a Christian, one night my sister called, and she was crying on the phone, and my sister said, guess what happened, David? Jesus saved me tonight, and my sister became a believer. And five months after that, my mom my mom, the night I was getting baptized, she was like, you've been brainwashed by Christians. Don't do this. Please don't. Ten months after I was a Christian, my mom calls one day. She's yelling on the phone. She goes, tonight I became a Christian. I say loud because I want your father to hear. He's not kicking me out. That's how she rolled. And my mom. Are y'all doing like a submission seminar soon? One of these days. About, sorry. But then my mom. My mom got saved. And then five months after that, my brother Benjamin, who's Down syndrome, God saved him. And I thought, dude, God is on like this five-month clock, you know? And five months later, my dad was not saved. And five months after that, he was even more angry. And my mom, boy, she was putting Bible verses in his food, in his Rogaine, everything, right? She was just going jihad on him with the gospel, I'm telling you. And for two and a half years, for two and a half years, my dad couldn't get more angry, couldn't get more. I'm telling you, for him, me becoming a Christian was one more can't believeism, one more excuse, one more reason, one more my prodigal son has led our family astray. He's hurt our heritage. Our family back in Iran is going to hear about this, and he's going to be ashamed, you know, and all of these things. But you know what? Despite all of that, two and a half years later, there was an mo- afternoon when the God of this universe invaded my dad's life, and God saved my dad. And I'm telling you that to say, before we knew him, he knew us. I'm telling you that to say, even post my salvation, there was a moment where you would have told me, one day, God will take down all the camp believisms and all the reasons and all the excuses and all the obstacles, even for your dad. And I'd go, you don't know the Mount Everest of reasons why my father will never be a Christian. And I'm so glad God was bigger than my own reasons. And people say to me all the time, they go, boy, David, it must have been tough for your Muslim father to come to Christ. I mean, he's like a self-made millionaire, 
touches everything he touches turns into financial gold. And my dad speaks four languages fluently. He's just that military tough, you know, guy. He's like, on paper, nothing about him should ever convert to Christianity. People always go, boy, it must have been tough for someone like your dad or you, David, to come to Christ. And I always go, not half as tough as it is for the American church that are lost that I preach to. My wife's a perfect example. My wife grew up in the church. My wife was the opposite of me. She, I grew up outside the church, didn't want to have anything to do with church. I was like a mixed bag of Islam meets and, you know, agnosticism and all, just all these excuses. My wife grew up in the church. She was Bible drill champion for the state of Alabama two years in a row. How you like them apples? Back to back. My wife was such a leader that when she was 16 at her big old honking church, they put her on the pastor's search committee. Everybody else was like a big tithing 55-year-old. They put her on because she was that kind of a leader. She volunteered for everything nobody volunteered for. She came early and set up the chairs. She stayed late and cleaned up the you know, sanctuary. She went with the old people, the Branson, to help them eat soft foods. You know, whatever. I mean, she helped out with everything. And my wife was a counselor at an event as, as a counselor trainer. She had the counselor badge on, had trained other people. This guy gets up, preaches the gospel, and as he preaches the gospel, my wife as an 18-year-old comes down the aisle, takes off her counselor badge, hands it to her youth pastor and says, I need a savior. And her youth pastor said, what are you talking about? You're the leader of the youth group. And she said, you're right. You're right about that. I'm the leader, but it's always been about behavior modification and not about life surrender. My wife told me that on our second date. She was kind of giving me her testimony. She said, it's crazy, you know, because you got saved when you were 18. I was like, yeah. And she was like, I got saved when I was 18. And we both kind of started laughing. We both, at 18, met at the foot of the cross. But my journey was filled with a lot of unrighteousness. I was definitely the woman at the well, all right? And her journey was Nicodemus. It was just filled with a lot of religion, a lot of self-righteousness, a lot of church righteousness. And we both had to come to Jesus and say, it's your righteousness alone. They can save me. And people always say, they go, David, it must have been tough for someone like your dad. And I go, not half as tough as it is for the people I preach to who nod their head at everything I'm saying, believe every Chris Tomlin song that's asked of them to sing, to sing. I mean, agree with everything. Might even write a little tithe check, have good church attendance, might even give to missions. But deep down inside, some of y'all know exactly who you are. That's you. You're going to close your eyes and you're going to pray more to a black void than a Christ that's really invaded your life. And he's not really the landlord of all of you. You've not really given him the deed of everything. You've not said, here's my wallet, here's my future, here's my ambitions, here's my marriage. All of me surrendered at the only foot that it belongs to, you and you alone, King Jesus. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? Have you ever gotten over the pride of religion, the pride of your past, the, the meisms of, well, I've walked an aisle, I've prayed a prayer, and boy, we really want these Muslims to come to Jesus. And, and at the end of the day, you just look in the mirror and go, you know, there's not a whole lot of difference between someone getting delivered out of Islam or Buddhism or Mormonism than someone getting delivered out of, like, Sunday schoolism. And I grew up in churchism. And I got all the right answersisms. And, but yet, at the end of the day, you go, today, I, I, I think I find myself in this redundant rededication cycle that has never come to a place of true dedication in the first place. Can we pray together just where we are? Just, would you bow your heads with me? Maybe that's you today. I mean, maybe this morning, God has ordained this moment as your homecoming. 
long before the foundation of the earth, God had ordained this moment for you to come face to face with the gospel. And I know it's, it's a story, it's a testimony about the ultimate story of God and just one character in it, but could it be that, that you've never come to Christ? That today you hear my story, you hear my testimony, and you realize, man, I got the I once was lost, but I think I'm found. I don't know, Ron, if I really know him. Could it be that today that God has ordained this moment, he's predestined this very moment to not only knock at the door of your heart and say, I, I want in, but more than just as a guest, more than just as somebody who comes in to clean up the house a little bit, but someone who comes in to completely take over. See, Christianity is not about bad people becoming good people. That's religion. Christianity is about dead people finding eternal life in Jesus. It's not about doing, it's about trusting. Have you ever done that? If that's you this morning and you're saying, David, I need Christ in my life. I don't know when I close my eyes and I think about Jesus if he's anything more than just a religious historical figure that I try to mimic, but it's always been about behavior and it's never been about really identity. That's you. I just want to pray with you right now and just ask you to repeat after me this prayer of dependency, this declaration of dependence on him. King Jesus, I know you're God. I know that you lived here on earth the perfect life. And then you died a sinner's death to pay the penalty, to be the substitution for me, the sinner. And so the courtroom of life, I plead 100% guilty, but yet because of what you did on the cross, I plead 100% dependent, 100% forgiven by your life, your death, and your resurrection. Come into my life, all of me, needs a savior. Be my Lord, be my savior. I want all of you, God, to come into my life at this very moment. I don't have to do anything to earn it, but I want all of you to come in, but I receive all of it. If that's you this morning, you just prayed that prayer for the first time, or maybe for the first time for real, just ask you to set aside the, the barricade of pride and what are people going to think. If, if that's you today, maybe you thought you were just coming to, to make sure your teenager or your college student's getting set up for college, but God's got a bigger plan today. If that's you today, forget the role that you're playing. If you're saying today, at this very moment, I just prayed that prayer for the first time or for the first time for real. If that's you, will you just lift your hand wherever you are? Just both campuses, all the, just lift your hand wherever you are and just wave it at me and put it back down right now. All right, anybody else? Anybody else? Some of you are looking around going, man, if my friend will lift their hand, I'll lift my hand. Quit asking them into your heart. Quit being led by them when the Spirit of God right now is just very forefront, awakening you out of the slumber. Anybody else? Just lift your hand. Wave it at me and put it back down. Anybody else? Okay. Anybody else? That super glue of fear and pride, honestly, the super glue of religion, that super glue of just being passive, that super glue of my past, none of that can keep the gospel from today setting me free. Anybody else? Just lift your hand. Wave it at me and put it back down. Okay. Anybody else? David, you don't know how good I've been. It's not about how good you've been. David, you don't know how bad I've been. It's not about how bad you've been. Anybody else? I'm going to be honest with you. What's it cost you? Everything. Everything. What do you have to clean up? Nothing. You come just as you are. 
but he's selfish for all of you. Have you ever given him the deed of your life and said, I'm yours? Anybody else? Just lift your hand. Wave it at me and put it back down. Maybe you're like my wife was. You're good, but you're hanging on to good, and you're never going to be good enough. Anyone else? Just lift your hand. Wave it at me and put it back down. Anybody else? Do I have to lift my hand to receive Christ? You don't, by the way. It'd be just as authentic as someone who doesn't, but there's just something beautiful about being in a safe room and being able to declare, hey, I need a Savior. I read my Bible, and Jesus always called people publicly and and what he began in them privately. Anybody else? One last time. And I don't want to lift my hand, but I need to. Just lift your hand. Wave it at me and put it back down, all right? Well, let me be the first to say welcome home. Maybe today you're coming to Christ and you just prayed that prayer for the first time, or maybe a long time ago you've come to Christ. You can say, David, every time you say anyone else, I go, ask it again, because I know not by works that any man can boast, but by his works I'm saved already. But you've never really followed in believer's baptism. You've never really made that expression of thanksgiving known to the body. And and today the, the beauty of this particular Sunday is that uh, we get an encore of what we saw last Sunday. That you get an opportunity to, to come and be baptized this morning. Yes, get your hair messed up. Yes, they got shorts for you. And, and they got that moment where you go back and you talk to someone and you get done. Yes, all of that, a part of it. You today say, man, I, I want to thank Jesus. As I hear the testimony of a brother, it reminds me of who saved me. And I've never been baptized as an act of worship an act of declaration, an act of expression. If that's you, just uh, whoever you are, brand new believers in this room, maybe believers who've known him for a long time, or, or maybe even my wife, she was this way, y'all. She got baptized when she was like nine or 10, but it was out of order. Then she got truly saved at 18, and she had to get it in right order. Maybe that's you, and if that's you, I just want to pray, just a prayer of boldness over you. And so, Jesus, I pray for boldness, for brothers and sisters in this room who you just saved a few seconds ago and who you've saved years ago that now as an extension of our thanksgiving, as an expression, God, of of what you've done in the work of salvation in our lives, that, that you would give us the courage today to step out and to be baptized, God, as a as a way to show people that I'm not ashamed to say what God has done in my life. Just praying for that for you. Can we stand together, church, and can we stand together? Our pastors are going to come and, and just kind of take us from this moment.